New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Our guest today, research scientist Dean Radin, says based on a substantial body of experimental evidence, we can state with a high degree of confidence that real magic exists. Second, there are rising trends in science suggesting that what was once called magic is poised to evolve into a new scientific discipline, just as medieval astrology and alchemy evolved into today's astronomy and chemistry. Understanding how this enigmatic space works in a way that's consistent with the rest of science requires a new worldview, the lens through which we understand reality. This statement begs many questions such as, is it possible to study magic using scientific principles and methods? What does the evidence tell us about the reality of magic? Are there any hints within today's science that tell us how magic works? Today we'll be exploring these and many other questions with our guest, Dr. Dean Radin. Dean Radin is Chief Scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, also known as IONS, an Associate Distinguished Professor of Integral and Transpersonal Psychology at the California Institute of Integral Studies. He's the author of many books, including The Unconscious Universe, Entangled Minds, Supernormal, and Real Magic, Ancient Wisdom, Modern Science, and a Guide to the Secret Power of the Universe. Join us for the next hour as we explore the science of real magic with our guest, Dr. Dean Radin. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Dean, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. It's good to have you here once more. Well, let me just start by saying you state that magic is real and it's a natural aspect of our reality. And as a scientist, um, it seems odd to be talking about this, uh, whatever this phenomena is in terms of magic. Yeah, we've been trained by entertainment to imagine that magic can only be understood as fantasy. So for a scientist to say that magic is real, I need to immediately then add, what do I mean by magic? So if you go through all of the esoteric literature, which, is, which talks about magic incessantly, 
it turns out that it, it falls into three categories. So one category is called divination. So we, we see that through tarot cards and rolling of dice and runes and so on. The second category is something I would call force of will, in which your intentions impress into the world and manifest things, shapes the world somehow. And the third category is theurgy, which is a word that roughly means God work. But the connotation is that somehow you can make God's work for you. And in the tr traditional magical ceremonial context, it's evoking spirits and getting them to do things on your behalf. So that's what we mean by magic. So now let's take those ideas and cast them into terms of what we've actually studied in a scientific way. Divination is precognition or clairvoyance, which has been studied for at least 150 years by science. Force of will, we would call psychokinetic effects, mind-matter interaction effects. That also has been studied for a long time. And the third category of theurgy has been studied in the context of near-death experiences, of mediumship, and so on. So what I'm saying then from a scientific perspective, we can look at what magic actually is, the practices of magic, and simply ask, well, what does science have to say about that? And when we do that, we find out that there's actually quite a bit that can be said. Well, let, let's talk about some part of that. Let's, let's go first with um, force of will. Um, and I kind of associate a little bit of this with the... Uh, positive thinking or affirmations. And so are there any experiments that you've been doing about the efficacy of positive thinking and whether that really makes a difference uh, in your lives or in the world? or in? Well, there is, of course, uh, a whole academic domain about positive psychology. And that's pretty well established that if you have if you're optimistic and 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 just from a psychological perspective, you're gonna probably do better than if you're chronically pessimistic. But that's not what we're interested in here. We're interested in the direct interaction of intention into the world. And so the 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 thing with positive thinking, with affirmations is it's a combination of psychology and maybe something beyond psychology. It's both. So if you simply maintain a positive attitude, you're probably going to get along with other people in a better way. But that's not magic. The magic part comes in where you really, really wish for something to happen, and it was unlikely to happen by itself, and yet it does. Then now you're starting to intrude into a realm where things that might just bubble along by themselves without deviating into an unusual direction, they in fact do deviate into those directions. And so we call those things synchronicities, or sometimes we'd, we'd say, this is, it happened like magic. Well, we mean that it happened and was unexpected to occur. So that has been studied in the laboratory, but under very controlled conditions. We are interested in the anecdotes because that's what we apply in our own lives. But in order to know whether that's really what it appears to be, you have to go into the laboratory. And now we're talking about experiments where you have somebody's intention that is directed towards a physical system where you know how that physical system behaves very well. And you have essentially two conditions, one where people are intending something to happen, and then they withdraw their intention. 
And typically, you go back and forth and intend, withdraw, intend, withdraw. And now you look at the behavior of the physical system, and you can measure to see whether it actually changes. Does a laboratory change that? That that this setting change that? It very dramatically changes the outcome. The most likely thing that happens is that it squashes the effect, because you're asking somebody to do a miracle in the laboratory. You're also having a demand characteristic where you're asking somebody to do something right now. Do the miracle, not only a miracle, but a miracle on demand right now under the conditions in which I'm asking you to do them. That plus, uh, rather than pushing world events around or events in somebody's life, you're trying to change something like an electronic circuit or a Geiger counter or other various, usually non-living systems. So they they won't have much of an emotional connection with it. Huh? Right. So the, the challenge in any kind of laboratory experiment is to make it close enough to real-world needs to make it interesting. But we can't always do that. Sometimes you have a very, very simple display like a squiggly line moving on a graph. That's it. Make the line go up. So these become very abstract and uh, and simplistic experiments, but the advantage is that we also have very high control and knowledge about what is actually going on. Is the system behaving like it should or like it shouldn't, statistically? So when we, we look at those kinds of experiments, fortunately, the force of will is strong enough, even in these very austere conditions, that we do see things happening. That tells us that in principle, if somebody has a very strong motivation and need for an affirmation to occur in their life, we know that in principle, your intention can push the world around a little bit. Now, when you do these experiments and you're, you're choosing the subjects, the people who are going to be, you're choosing to do it, do you interview them ahead of time? Are they skeptical of this sort of phenomena or are they believers? Uh, do, you, do you kind of do a little pre, pre-interview to, so that you put on the paper these people were very skeptical and these people were, were believers? If we're doing an experiment that is, is dubbed a sheep-goat experiment, then yes. So the sheeps are the, are the believers, or the sheep, and the goats are the not believers. And so many experiments have been done to separate people according to their prior belief, and then they do an experiment. And we know from many experiments that the results will split according to their belief. So the sheep will get positive results, sometimes significantly positive. The goats will either get no result at all, or more likely they'll get a significant negative result. They'll get a real result, but it's in the opposite direction from what the assigned Well, direction. I would think that that's very significant in and of itself. Sure. Uh, there's, a, there's a quote that you have in the book that I, I really love from Don Miguel Ruiz, and he says, we only see what we want to see. We only hear what we want to hear. Our belief system is just like a mirror that only shows us what we believe. I've heard this in other ways with other people, and it just that just makes sense that when we're trying to talk to someone, let's say someone over a different political system than ourselves, and there's no way we can convince them of our point of view. And, and I think that some of that is, 
is present that that they can't believe whatever it is that we're saying because the mirror of it is just not getting through it's not getting past that belief system mirror right but but also consider that the the filter the belief filter which allows you to see certain ways only it also seems to be true though for intention which is interesting because if if you think you cannot do something like you can't do this psychokinetic task the likelihood is that you're not going to be able to do it because some part of your mind is filtering out your whatever underlying motivation or intention is required in order to make it happen. So when you look into the the literature, the magical literature, I'm talking about the esoteric literature here, it turns out that belief is one of the most important factors in whether or not a spell, meaning a force of will effect, is actually going to happen. That's amazing. So the word for me that comes up for me in that is we must have confidence in ourselves or we must train our children to have confidence in ourselves rather than just always putting them down. That there is some very, very positive benefit of training ourselves and training our children to have confidence Yes, but there's a dark side. Oh, all right. So the dark side is, as you've already mentioned, that if you very strongly believe in a certain political uh, angle, that is all you can see and all you can know. The same is true in any kind of magical practice, that if you if you walk around in a, with a pessimistic or cynical viewpoint and, and the way that the world works, you will shape it into that direction. We'll talk more about that in just one moment. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Dr. Dean Radin, and he's the author of many books, including Real Magic, Ancient Wisdom, Modern Science, and a Guide to the Secret Power of the Universe. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Dean Radin. He's the chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, and he's the author of many books, including The Conscious Universe, Entangled Minds, Supernormal, and Real Magic, Ancient Wisdom, Modern Science, and a Guide to the Secret Power of the Universe. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, DeanRaden.org, DeanRaden.org, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, NewDimensions.org. Dean, uh, I'd like to 
go back to something that we were talking about earlier. You were talking about synchronicity. And you have a story, your uh, of your own story about a synchronicity that I just found marvelous. Uh, this was years ago when you were looking for an office space. I'd love for you to share that story with our listeners. So this is a multi-part synchronicity, each part of which would could maybe be thought of as curious as a classic synchronicity, but it's the compounding of several things in a row, which made it just mind-boggling. So this was early in 2000 when the dot-com craze was going crazy, uh, and office space and cost was quite high. So we were, we were looking for an office for a new nonprofit that we were building, and we finally found a place in Los Altos in a, uh, a kind of a strip mall where there were real estate offices and dentists and that sort of thing. And we found an office space, a small one, but uh, one that we could afford, so we got it. So in looking around at the the other people in this office complex, we happened to notice that one of them was called PsyQuest, P-S-I Quest, Incorporated. And we thought, well, that's a funny coincidence because we're doing Psy Research. P-S-I is a short name for psychic. So we're doing Psy Research, although our name didn't have Psy in it at all. We, we specifically chose a name that nobody would know what it meant. We, it was called Boundary Institute. So we thought, well, somebody else is a PsyQuest. But we figured it had to mean something like Personnel Services Incorporated or something like that because we, we were very well aware of everybody in the world who was doing this. And we knew that there's nobody who's going to have a business doing psychic something, PsyQuest. So we, we kind of tossed it off as a, uh, as a good sign that we were in the right place. So I happened to live close enough to, to work to be able to walk, and about a month after we moved in, I took a different route to get to our office. And I noticed that right next door to us, which I hadn't noticed before, was PsyQuest Labs. So it was related in some way to this PsyQuest Incorporated, but this was a laboratory. And now I was thinking, well, what are they, how are they studying personnel services in a laboratory? It didn't make any sense. So every day after that, I, I peeked in the window and knocked on the door. I wanted to see, first of all, introduce ourselves since we were next door and to see what they were up to. But there was nobody there. So this went on for almost a month. Finally, I see that there's somebody moving inside and knock on the door. The man comes to the door. He opens the door, and I'm prepared to say, hello, I'm Dean Radin, and introduce myself. I actually start to say that, and his mouth drops open. I thought he was going to fall over. He was stunned. And, and it took a while for him to, to recover, and then I didn't know what to do. If I call 911 or what? <laughs> but it, it turns out that this is a man who was a former Apple employee, it was one of the developers of the original laptop, the Apple PowerBook. He cashed out from Apple and did what he always wanted to do, which was psychic research. So PsyQuest Labs was his laboratory doing Psy research, which already is shocking because we're next door and we're doing Psy research. And we had never heard of this guy before. But then we, I wondered, well, why were you so shocked when he opened the door? Because he was trying to manifest me. And I said, what did, well, what do you mean? And I was already starting to have the, my skin crawling thinking about this. 
he, as, as a private person creating a for-profit business on CyResearch, was in the, in the process of raising money, building a board of directors, all that. He wanted to find me to be on his board of directors. But he didn't know where I was. In fact, at that point, hardly anybody, even my colleagues, didn't know that we were starting this new nonprofit. And almost no one knew that I was living in Silicon Valley. So he was doing a Tibetan practice where you, you stay up and sleep in three-hour shifts for 24 hours, back and forth. And while you're, you're awake, you have this very strong intention to manifest what you want. And then you go to sleep with the same idea, so you try to get it in a sleep state, too. So he had 24 hours worth of repeatedly manifesting me or trying to get a sign that he was on the right track. So he was near the end of his 24-hour period. The door knocks. He opens it. And I'm standing there. So I think I have free will. You know, I, I just walked there that, that morning, opened the door, so I knocked it and so on. So I felt this was completely free will on my part, but maybe not because he was he was essentially forcing this to happen through his own force of will and a, and a certain practice. So that was synchronicity too. Third synchronicity is, uh, besides freaking out everyone that, <laughs> upon, upon hearing this, is when I was in my own office, which was next door to this place, what I had been doing for the previous month was on a whiteboard was drawing the kind of laboratory equipment that I wanted. And so I, I made this whole scheme of a certain kind of electrically shielded box and certain kinds of instruments and a leather chair that would recline inside the box and so on. So finally, this guy's name is John. He invites me in to, to see what's in the back room, the laboratory part. So I walk in there and then all the color drains out of my face because I'm now looking at what I was drawing. I'm looking at a shielded room, it has the, the leather chair that reclines, it has the, all kind of the physiological equipment I'm interested in. And then the fourth synchronicity is it's on the other side of the wall from where I was drawing it on the whiteboard. So unbeknownst to me, while at least consciously, while drawing on this whiteboard, uh, roughly six inches away on the other side of the wall was the very thing that I wanted to bring into existence. So he manifested me. And I manifested the thing that I wanted. So it was like a duel without either of us knowing in any normal way. We were both doing what amounts to a manifestation spell and pulling things into existence. Neither one of us knowing, having any idea where it's going to come from. But in a sense, when you, you do a magical spell, that's not the issue. The, the issue is you have an intention. You may place it in the future. And then the, the future somehow pulls you towards that. So we were discussing afterwards, and how in the world did this happen? Because there are no other Psy Research Labs like this in the world, and yet we were right next to each other. And we decided that, that intention works in a way, or at least analogous, to something like gravity. It's simply a force that pulls you towards it. And in this case, intention was acting like gravity, except we were two bodies. The two bodies get pulled together each other like, oh, like a planet and a moon. You start orbiting each other until eventually, if you're lucky, the two will connect. So we connected. The, the gravitational pull of the intention just made it happen. So I've had other synchronicities as well, but nothing as dramatic as something like this. 
Yeah, I'm, thank you for sharing that story and that detail because it, it was it was extraordinary, as you say, so many different uh, synchronicities coinciding at the same time. You just know that this isn't just some sort of random something or other. It at least appears to be much, much broader than that. And one of the things that you talk about there is that in let's say on in his case probably yours too but for sure in his case he had this strong intention and then he followed it with practices and and part of the practice was to think about it and really be with it and then to release it and just to let it go into a dream state so can you say something about the way intention works in that in that way. Yeah, both in magical practice and what we see in the laboratory suggests that you need to want something more than you've ever wanted anything ever. The motivation has to be completely off the scale. But then you also need to not want it. So it gives it gives rise to this phrase of effortless striving. You must strive like crazy but without any effort at all. So it creates paradox from the get-go. We're not used to effortless striving, but it seems that something like that is necessary to have this work. Uh, why, we don't know yet, but it's very interesting that you then see it re- said repeatedly within the magical lore. You must, you must do everything you possibly can to push the intention and then release it. So in the laboratory, what you see generally is uh, something that has been labeled the release of effort effect. You try like crazy to make something happen, and then you finally give up, and that's the moment that you give up that the thing happens. So, maybe, is that is that the same as like letting go of outcome, letting sort of like not being attached to the outcome? Yes, and so you may be right that the the key there is the attachment. That if you you really really want something to happen, your ego is very heavily involved in it's it's grabbing onto the thing that you want that seems to prevent it from actually manifesting it's necessary to to kind of form what it is that you want but if you grasp it too hard it doesn't allow it to move so interestingly there's there's a parallel in quantum mechanics something called the quantum zeno effect so we know from quantum mechanics that the observing elementary particles will change their behavior. So there's like step one, your observation makes a difference. But if you observe an elementary particle very, very quickly, it'll freeze it. It freezes its evolution in a quantum sense. Imagine that uh, you, you may have an atom or something that likes to move in a certain way, vibrates in a certain way. Well, if you measure it once, you won't see this effect. You have to repeatedly measure it quickly you, you will essentially stop it from moving. It cannot evolve anymore because you observed it, its behavior changed. You observe it again, its behavior changed. But the changing, you can force it to stop its evolution. So this is now talking about it from terms of fundamental physics, that there seems to be an, an analogy that occurs at the level of the everyday world from a magical perspective, that you must want it, you observe it repeatedly again and again and again, but it's, nothing's going to happen. You're kind of freezing the system, and now you let it go, and it can go do what you want it. Ah. So the, you're saying that in actual, in physics, in quantum physics, there is 
an instance where you actually look at a small particle and I mean, I'm just going to repeat this because this is just mind-boggling. So you you see it really quickly a lot, and then you freeze it by just doing that. That observation freezes it. Right. It's also another form of the quantum Zeno effect where you can accelerate its evolution. Both of them have to do with the speed with which you're observing. But in, in general, the first way that this was seen is the prediction that if you observe something at, the, at a quanta, a, the very small elementary particle level, the act of observing will cause it to, to, to stop evolving. I'm here with Dr. Dean Radin. He's the author of Real Magic. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Dean Radin. He's the chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences and the author of Real Magic, Ancient Wisdom, Modern Science, and a Guide to the Secret Power of the Universe. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, deanradin, R-A-D-I-N, dot org, O-R-G. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. Dean, we started off our conversation, you talked about the three types of real magic. And one, you said force of will. Another was divination. So I'd love for you to say something about divination. And I, I want to say, some, first, I'm going to say something about divination because I just had an experience of it just recently. One of the things that I use for divination in, in my life I don't use it very often, and that's the I Ching, which is an ancient tradition of um, hexagrams of throwing coins or yarrow sticks and and getting uh, a hexagram in answer to some question. And in this kind of divination, it's really important the question you ask. You don't ask a yes or no question. You ask for advice or to ask uh, what is the... Uh, um, culture around which this, whatever it is, is happening, something like that. And I notice for myself, as I say, I only do this maybe three or four times a year. So when I do it, I know that I'm going to go to it and I'm whatever it is that it's going to tell me, I'm going to take the advice that I go with that kind of intention. And I learned that from years ago with my husband because this was back in, I mean, like 1972, that he had this question of the I Ching, and he asked and he got the answer, and he didn't really like the answer. So he kind of redid the question. It was really the same question, but he asked it again, and he didn't like the second answer he got. So he went to it the third time, and when he went to it the third time, he got the hexagram. It's called Youthful Folly. 
said, if you're not going to believe me, then just don't come to me anymore, is what it really amounted to say. Well, of course, he never did that again. And uh, and so that that's why I also use that very, very seriously. And always the advice that it gives me just seems tailor-made to the question I'm asking. So with that little long preamble, uh, I'd love for you to say something about divination and your experience of it. So divination can be perception through space or time. Through space, we, we have the words like clairvoyance and remote viewing, and through time, precognition. So interestingly, of the range of scientific evidence for psychic phenomena, the evidence for precognition is the best. So the, the, when you think about how confident are you that, that these various forms of magic exist, divination, I think, is by far the strongest. Possibly because it is simply more difficult to manifest things in the physical world than it is to passively perceive them. In, in terms of precognition, all of the evidence suggests that we perceive probable futures. We don't see the future that will actually occur, which... I think is nice because it suggests that maybe free will is a real thing, that we have a sense that we can choose what unfolds, and we don't have to, to do something because it happens to be fated. So I could describe uh, one type. Uh, there are several different classes of ways that we know about precognition, but if you like, I can talk about one. Please. So this is a method that I call presentiment because precognition suggests that you pre-know something, cognize, whereas presentiment is pre-feel. So the, the pre-feeling experience is actually the most common that people have in terms of psychic effects, and they might even, not even think of it as psychic. They may think of it as a, an intuitive hunch or a gut feeling or something like that. The way it's expressed in my own experience, and I know in others as well, is that you're driving towards a green light. This actually happened to me about six months ago. You, you see a green light. You're driving towards it. You can't, because a building is blocking it or something, you can't see who's on the, the other road, the crossroad, uh, but you have a green light. So typically what people do is, is speed up a little bit because you want to make the light. And for some reason, I'm approaching the light and I'm slowing down. And I'm thinking, well, there's something wrong about this. I don't like it. I, there are no other cars around. There's a car behind me who's wondering why I'm slowing down but there are no other cars around. So I'm slowing down. It gets slower and slower as the light remains green. Now the person behind me is getting angry. And as I approach the, the road where I can now turn into the road, I come to almost a complete stop. And just then, somebody blasts through the red light crossway. It's at about 50 miles an hour. Didn't even slow down for the light. So they clearly didn't see it or something. And I realized at that point that if I kept going at the same speed, I would have been hit broadside, maybe killed. So this was a pre-feeling, except I didn't feel good about this. I had no knowledge of it. So in the laboratory, the challenge is how do we simulate that so we can study that kind of phenomena without putting somebody at risk? So we have a method that, that works, and it works really well. First of all, we're looking at, at the, your unconscious response. So we, we wire you up to look at usually the autonomic nervous system. And you can measure that through things like pupil dilation and skin conductance and heart rate and so on, those kinds of, of physiological effects, which are very sensitive ways of figuring out what's happening below your level of awareness. So we're looking at your unconscious. And then you, you wire somebody up, you have them sit down in front of a computer, uh, they're told they press a button, and then the screen remains blank for five seconds, and then a picture comes up 
The picture is chosen at random from a large pool of pictures, some of which are very emotional and some are very calm. And then they see that picture for three seconds. The picture goes away for about 10 seconds. And then when they're ready, they press the button and they do the same kind of experiment. So the picture is selected truly at random. Nobody knows in advance what's about to occur. And it's not selected until just the instant before it's, it's shown. So it's not a clairvoyance experiment because it doesn't exist while we're recording your physiology beforehand. It only exists the instant before it shows up. So it's a true precognition experiment. The prediction is that if you're in fact responding to a future fright or emotional uh, condition, that your body will behave differently, become more aroused than if you're about to see something calm. So we've done this experiment with hundreds of people now and has been repeated in labs around the world. And what you see again and again with virtually every physiological measure that we've looked at, including not only autonomic nervous system, but also the central nervous system, that the body begins to gear up in advance of seeing or experiencing something emotional as compared to something calm. So this is a way of taking a real-life event that many people talk about in one way or the other, put it into a lab context where we understand what's happening, and we see that there's a statistically significant difference. What's even more exciting, though, is the experiment that I just described, where you're, you're looking at series of pictures, some of which are emotional and some are calm, this is done like every day in Psychophysiology 101. It's a way of studying how does the body respond to emotion. So there are thousands of such studies that have been done. So my colleagues uh, asked, they first of all looked through the literature to find people who had done similar experiments, the same design, asked for the raw data because what they could do is take that same experiment and do the analysis that we did, which was look what happened before the picture showed up. And in the databases they were able to get, they found this same effect. This is important because it means that we're talking about something which exists probably in, in everyone. And it exists in existing experiments which are conducted for other reasons. So it's not only that the experimenters might have been skeptical, they were completely unaware that they were doing a presentiment experiment, which we then found in the data only afterwards. This is very exciting, these experiments that you're talking about and this information that you're gathering. So uh, are you finding there is a receptivity in, in scientific journals and magazines that are just going, going crazy over this and saying, wow, this is a, a new science and we need to really follow up on this? What's the verdict? Well, for the scientific papers that are published, we find that uh, a meta-analysis was done by a colleague looking at experiments like this presentiment experiment. It was published in a, in a well-regarded journal. We know because of the statistics on it that it's been viewed over 90,000 times. So you compare that with a typical journal article, which if you're doing really well, might be looked at 100 times, <laughs> 200 times. This is 90,000 times, which means it's getting a huge amount of play. It's the equivalent of a viral paper, only in, mm -hmm. not in, that, not in the, the YouTube sense, but as a, an article that people are paying attention to, yes, it attracts a lot of attention. But that's about it. And the, the reason why it doesn't go much further than that, why we don't see everybody jumping on board and just trying to do this, is first of all, that particular experiment does require some expertise in psychophysiology, so that cuts down who can do it. Uh, but more importantly, people will then say, well, well, how do you explain that this works? Because it seems to violate, it violates the laws of physics. 
right? We expect cause and effect to only go in one direction. There's a second law of thermodynamics, blah, blah, blah. To which I would say, yeah, I understand all that. It does seem to be a challenge to our understanding of causality. And yet we're talking about facts. This is experimental empirical research which shows that this happens even though we don't know how it happens. So up until very recently, it was, very, it was difficult to say, uh, well, first of all, Purely from a theoretical perspective, you can say that the, all of the equations of classical and quantum mechanics are time-symmetric. They don't say in the equations which way things go. Our experience says it usually goes in just one direction. That's certainly what my clock says. But at least from a, from a mathematical perspective, that's not necessary. It's like empirically we see that in our everyday lives, but it's not necessary from the mathematics. More importantly, just recently, within a, a couple of weeks before this interview... A, a, a study was published showing that at a quantum scale, you can reverse the second law of thermodynamics. Oh, now wait, that's huge. Now say what the law of thermodynamics is. Well, the second law of thermodynamics is what we usually think of as the flow of time. It's, it's in one direction. It's in a preferred direction from order to less order. That's the direction of entropy. It's like the, the eventual heat death of the universe. That's the thing that's pulling us in that direction. And at the macroscopic scale, the scale of everyday life, that's what our clocks tell us too, except occasionally when we have a precognitive experience which suggests that some information somehow came back to us. But an experiment that, that was a predicted effect but now experimentally verified that at least at the, at the low scale, at the bottom scale of physics, quantum mechanics currently, that the second order of thermodynamics can be reversed experimentally. That means that since quantum mechanics is a better description of the physical world than the classical one, that, it, that what we're seeing in these experiments is not violating what we know about what is possible in, in the physical world. And, and this will still persist because people don't pay attention to every possible thing out there. Mm -hmm. no, no one can. But uh, the, the old complaint that these kinds of effects, not only precognition but force of will and these other effects, that they violate physics... None of that is actually oh, true. All right. Okay. All right. Well, now we're getting down to it. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Dr. Dean Radin, and he's the chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, and he is the author of Real Magic, Ancient Wisdom, Modern Science, and a Guide to the Secret Power of the Universe. If you'd like to know more about his work, you can go to his website, DeanRaden.org, or get there through the New Dimensions website, NewDimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Dr. Dean Radin, and he is the chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences and the author of Real Magic, Ancient Wisdom, Modern Science, and a Guide to the Secret Power of the Universe. Dean, I, I need to ask you, why did you write this book? Why would a scientist write a book on magic? Exactly. Yeah. Well, if you had asked me this question two years ago and said, are, uh, are you going to write a book on magic? Are you doing magic? I would, have, I would have said, that's ridiculous. Why would I ever want to write a book on magic? And uh, now I've written that book. So what happened in the interim? What happened is that when you, you take a scientific worldview, it, it's understood in terms of reductive materialism. That's like the, the worldview, the way, the lens through which we view things. The reductive part says that in order to understand something, you take it apart. If you want to know how a watch works, you break it up and you look at the gears and you can figure out how it works. The material part is that you assume that everything starts at its fundamental level at, with matter and energy. And so far, that idea of reductive materialism has been extremely successful. It allows us to do uh, all of the fancy technologies that we know today and much of the rest of the world. So... I, like many scientists, have been thinking of psychic phenomena in terms of how do we explain it within this lens? I mean, after all, science has been really successful. Why do you want to change any of it? In addition, I notice that when I, I tell my more conservative colleagues that I've been spending my professional career studying psychic phenomena, uh, they immediately say, well, what you're doing can't possibly be real because it would require us to throw away all our textbooks and start over again. And to which I agree. So I said, I don't know how it can be real, but I, I agree that the textbooks are too good. We have hundreds of years of, of knowledge that says that certain things work certain ways. So my challenge to myself was, how do we, what do we do with the scientific worldview if we want to understand the very phenomena that I've been studying, which I know are real because we see it in the laboratory? And so the answer was, uh, we need... A, a slightly expanded version of the scientific worldview, maybe more than slightly, but we need a version of it that stays the same. All right, when science advances, the old theories are not thrown away, typically. They're be they become more comprehensive. Quantum mechanics is a more comprehensive way of describing the world than new. So than you're classical. talking about like rings of a tree. Yes. You don't throw away which works, what works. You, you expand it and make it more comprehensive. So I said, okay, how can I expand the, the current scientific worldview to accommodate psychic phenomena? And I figured out a way of doing that, which I write about in the book. Uh, and the moment I did that, I realized, holy smoke, that means that what these anthropologists have been studying, primarily anthropologists, about the so-called beliefs of primitive societies, magic, those are probably real. This is real stuff we're talking about. And it was it took this expanded worldview idea to, to be able to see it in those terms. And now, after the about two years of study on this, I've pretty much flipped from the standard materialistic viewpoint to one that a philosopher would call idealism. And of course, this is completely about what you think consciousness is. That's where the crux is. So that's why the subtitle of the book is The Secret Power of the Universe. The secret power of the universe is that it's not made out of matter and energy and, and physical stuff. It's probably made out of consciousness, which is not physical. 
uh, that's it's so fascinating too. And I just want to tell our listeners that there is a portion of the book that's dedicated to that. You take us through the ages. You you really do the whole beautifully done uh, uh, history of all of the esoteric literature and traditions, and that was just fascinating. So that's a whole part of the book, and so it's all there in there. But I'm I'm so glad that you're starting to touch on um, consciousness and that you're saying, it, so there's something beyond energy and matter. I mean, that's the materialistic viewpoint of the universe, that it all is quantifiable as energy and matter, and that's it. That's where we are. And you're adding in and also consciousness, which is this other realm that is not so measurable. I, I know that scientists feel that uh, there are many neuroscientists that feel like um, that Mind and brain are the same thing, but you're 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 saying that the brain is not maybe the seat of consciousness. And what what would you say about that? Well, you know, it's true that the neurosciences assume that consciousness emerges out of brain function. And I would say, well, maybe not consciousness. If we define consciousness as awareness, sub subjectivity, that I'd think probably is not generated by the brain. However, we think of mind and, th and think of mind in terms of cognition and inf information processing, perception and all that stuff, that may well be actually produced in the brain. The brain as, as a, an object has evolved over millions of years to allow this organism, the human body, to participate in the world in a certain way, in a refined way. So I think uh, to some extent our memories and to a large extent our perceptions, our, our thinking, our mental apparatus, these may well be correlated with the brain. Not only correlated, but maybe even caused. However, the, this, the puzzle is not so much about the information processing, it's about the awareness of it, the internal awareness that this is happening. Or said another way, the mystery is that you have any experience at all. We can make a robot that simulates what humans do as we're beginning to do now. We don't have any sense that the robot is aware of what they're doing. So what is it then? What is, where does that awareness come from? Sometimes people will say, I don't believe that. I think, I think the consciousness emerges out of the brain, to which I respond, who's asking that question? <laughs> Who, who's the I? What's the I that is asking right. that question? What's even funnier, people say, I don't believe in consciousness. I don't believe consciousness even exists because it's all brain stuff. Again, well, who's having the illusion that, that you don't believe this? So this, of course, you can go all the way back to people like Ramana Maharshi and others who use that as a, a meditation to begin to ask in, in greater and greater detail from an introspection perspective, what do you think you are? But this will deflect us into an, an entirely different <laughs> conversation. Right, right. So the the point then is uh, that if it is true that the brain gives rise to every aspect of consciousness that we know, then it becomes very difficult to understand any kind of psychic experience or mystical experience as anything other than a delusion. Except we know from the laboratory that it is not a delusion. 
So we need to accommodate the fact that maybe a lot of ourselves are lo localized roughly around the body and brain, but not all. Because if you get somebody who's really good at remote viewing, they could see what's happening on Pluto. They could see what's happening two days from next Tuesday on Pluto. Well, well how can they do that? You can't do that if, that if all of your consciousness is generated in the brain because Pluto's too far away mm -hmm. and tomorrow's too far away. So we need a more expansive view of what we think is going on. And interestingly, when you begin to look at both philosophers and scientists, more and more beginning to like ideas like panpsychism and neutral monism and other words like that, all of which are saying that there is some, some element of the fabric of reality which is sentient all the way down to electrons or even below that perhaps, that there is awareness at every scale of existence. So we are a certain scale. We have a certain kind of object in our head that allows us to process the world and be aware of it in a certain way, a human way. That suggests, though, that, that consciousness is simply a more comprehensive way of thinking about physical reality itself. And that is, in fact, when you go through all of the esoteric traditions, that's what those esoteric traditions are saying. Consciousness is more fundamental. First of all, consciousness is fundamental, but it's more fundamental than the constructs we have of space and time and matter and energy. And this goes back to uh, Max Planck's, uh, who's the father of quantum theory, who says, I regard consciousness is fundamental. Right. So, I mean, going back to this first, this father of all of this is saying that. And and I, I also love the analogy where you talk about how we affect change and you talk about the elephant shaking, uh, mm. that we affect change and we think, well, why can't I just make this work all the time? And sometimes we're just the tail wagging and it's not going to wag the whole elephant and sometimes it's a whole elephant shaking and that's that collective consciousness so uh we we only we have less than 30 seconds is there anything that you want to say about that analogy or anything else that you'd like to leave us with today Nina? well that analogy was talking about the uh, when people hear about magic and magic spells and all of that, say, well, why can't I wish for a gold Mercedes to just show up tomorrow? Well, you can, and doing so will increase the probability that it's going to show up, but you're pushing against at least 7 billion other people who also want things to show up, and the universe will is trying to accommodate all of it at the same time. So there's an enormous amount of inertia that works against you. That's, that's why you can't simply make it poof appear. So I, I know that in the book you have some uh, wonderful suggestions for affirmations and for making sigils and things like that. So I, I encourage people to look that up. And I want to thank you so much, Dean, for being with us today. Happy to be here. I've been speaking with Dr. Dean Radin. He's the... Uh, He's the chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, and he's the author of Real Magic, Ancient Wisdom, Modern Science, and a Guide to the Secret Power of the Universe. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, deanradin.org, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions.
This is program number 3632. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. This program was recorded at Strawberry Hill Productions, a full-service podcast production studio in Novato, California. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions, whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org, or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions. Thank you.